Love uh, Psalm 34, 18, right? The Lord is, is close to the brokenhearted, right? That's what we've been talking about in this series. And that's something that brings a lot of hope, and that's a promise, right? Uh, we've been doing this series called A Light in the Dark. And if this is your first time here, kind of let me catch up to speed of what we've been talking about, because today is going to be a very unique Sunday here at Grace Church. Uh, we've been talking about A Light in the Dark because we said this, is that some of us live in darkness, Some of us, literally, we live in dark spaces. And we said, just like physically, when the lights go out, it gets dark outside, here's what happens. Noises get louder, right? Shadows get bigger. Things seem scarier. And so when we walk through these dark spaces, whether it be emotionally, mentally, spiritually, here's what happens. The very same thing, right? Noises seem louder. Shadows seem bigger. And sometimes life can seem scarier. And here's what I know, a room this size, I'm confident of this, that some of you are here this morning and you're in a dark space. Let me say this, I'm glad you're here. I'm thrilled that you're here. Our whole desire in having this conversation is to provide hope to people who are in a dark space. There are some of you that are here and you know somebody, it's your spouse, it's your friend, it's your child, it's your parent, whatever it might be, they're in a dark space. I'm glad you're here. Because our hope in this series is to help those of you who know people who need help and need hope in their life. Here's what I know. When we're in a dark space, think about it this way. Dark spaces, we do one of two things. When we're in a dark space, some of us, what we do is we panic. And when we're in a dark space, we panic and we end up doing things we wouldn't otherwise do. And some of you, that's where you're at. You're like, I don't know why I'm doing these things that I'm doing. I have no idea why I'm acting the way I'm acting. And the fact of the matter is, maybe it's because you're in this dark space and it's causing you to panic and do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Others of us, we don't panic, we get paralyzed, right? And in the middle of the darkness, we just stop doing what we normally were doing, right? And because the darkness can paralyze us and all of a sudden there's fear and all of a sudden the relationships we used to have, we don't have anymore. Why? Because the darkness is so scary and overwhelming, it paralyzes us. So here's what we said, and it's going to lead to where I want to go today. We said week one, the reason we're having this conversation is the darkness is real. Can I just say this? I mean, I've been a pastor for 26 years. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'd have to think about it, but I don't know if there's been a series that I've done where I've gotten more feedback. You know, that's told me the darkness is real, that we've absolutely needed to have this conversation that we're having. And so we said this, that because the darkness is real, the very first thing we got to do is we got to be real about the darkness we feel because we said we're never going to heal till we're real. So the place to begin is to say, hey, the darkness is real. I need to be real about the darkness I feel if I'm going to experience some healing. And then we said this, then I want to begin revealing, right? I want to begin revealing what in the world is causing this darkness that I'm feeling. And so we kind of went through some different things. You can go online and check it out. We talked about depression, anxiety. We talked about trauma and pain. We talked about loneliness last week. And so all I've done throughout this series is say, hey, we want to provide some hope, crack open the door. Next Saturday, we want to continue to do that. I want you to write this date down next Saturday, November 2nd. We're offering this workshop, nine o'clock till 12 o'clock Saturday morning. 
Uh, doors are going to open 8.30, Continental Breakfast, and Emerge Ministries is coming. They're going to help us kind of walk through depression, anxiety. It's going to be a workshop on that. Trauma and pain, grief, and how in the world I can walk through grief, and then this whole idea of addiction. And so you can sign up, fill out the red card, go on your app. There's actually a place down in the lobby. You can go and say, hey, I want to be a part of that. Sign up for two workshops. We simply want to provide some help for those of you who are helping and hope for some of you who are hurting. And then throughout the series, and this lead us to today, right? Throughout the series, I said, would you please give me your questions? Let me just say this. There is no way in one morning we can cover all the questions, right? No way. Your questions have been awesome. So what we've tried to do is condense them. And what we want to do this morning, if you're here, and you're here for the first time, it's going to look a lot different than it normally does, but I'm really excited about it. We're going to simply interact with some of your questions, but I'm not going to do it alone. I've asked two really, really special people to come join me. And can I tell you, the two people I'm going to invite, I actually love doing ministry with these two people. These two people have helped lots of people. These two people have interacted in the realness of life, been through their own darkness, and helped people find hope, and also are helping people as they themselves have been helped. I'd love for you guys to do me a favor this morning. As enthusiastically as you can, would you welcome to the stage Pastor Dale Henneman and Sarah Friddle. Sound like y'all got a fan club out there. I'm just saying, huh? Well, Pastor Dale, welcome back. Uh, Why don't you tell us this, just so in case somebody wasn't here when you first shared. um, Why don't you share this? You've been a counselor for how many years? About one. (laughs) Well, we're glad we asked you to be a part of this. No, I've uh, I've been in the ministry for about 39 years. 39 years. And I'm doing full-time counseling for the last... uh, 15 years or so. Wow. 39 years in a minute. You start when you were five or what happened? <laughs> that was a compliment, right? Look, That's your count. I'm looking pretty good, aren't I? <laughs> so Pastor, Pastor Dale uh, actually is the uh, founder, I guess you'd say, of Community Chaplaincy Services over here in the Norton Plaza. And so we work very closely with Pastor Dale and his crew over there. Uh, so grateful for the opportunity to do ministry with you, you guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, I send tons of people there yeah. uh, because we have great faith and trust, uh, and I love your love for Jesus and to help people. And then Sarah is our newest staff member. Isn't that awesome? And she is, yeah, you do have a fan club. And uh, she uh, is doing double duty this weekend because she is our give it away manager. That means she was the one that organized, helped execute this huge event we had yesterday called Trunk or Treat. How many of you were here or heard of? Yeah. She did a great job. Give her a hand. Yeah. How many people came through yesterday? Um, we're guessing about... Is it working? Yeah. Okay, we're guessing about 1,500, plus we had 110-ish volunteers. 1,500, that's awesome, and you did a great job. 1,500 people, we had a chance. Lots of candy went out. We had a real-life pony back here, mm-hmm. right? And now we know who gave permission, and so we're looking for a worship pastor. No, I'm kidding about that. <laughs> it was awesome. We had, a, we had a great time together. Before you came on staff here, though... Why don't you tell everybody what you were doing before you came on staff? It might help them understand why I invited you to be a part of this little discussion. Well, I have a clinical social work license, so I've been a social worker for about 15 years. Most recently, I worked um, with older folks in poverty trying to remain at home. 
Um, but I also did about eight years working with hospice care, working, walking with families through death and dying. And you yourself are very gifted at helping people. How many times have I told you in the eight weeks you've been on staff that I'm glad you're here? A lot. A lot, <laughs> that's right. So we're so grateful she's on the team. This whole conversation that we're having, we just kind of want to jump in because there's some specific questions, but let's start general. Uh, because one of the things I think that people struggle with is there's a stigma that goes along with this conversation. The whole idea of mental health, mental illness, disorder, emotional trauma, even distinguishing, like sometimes they lump them all together. Can you tell us anything in the room here that might help us navigate, one, the stigma, and two, how in the world do we navigate in a way that doesn't just lump it all together? Sure. I I think when we think about mental health, we need to remember that um, mental health is on a spectrum. There are people who are chronically and severely mentally ill who need lifelong management of their difficult, you know, brain condition. And there's people who, like we had talked about in the first week, who chemically are maybe low-level depression. That's just their chemical nature. And there's people who are normally very emotionally well, but have life circumstances that punch them in the gut. And um, they have an, an injury from, from life just punching them in the gut. I, when we think about emotional injury, we think about things like post-traumatic stress, where you may have normally been high, pretty high-functioning as far as emotional wellness, and something just injures your, injures your, mm. your emotions, injures your mental health. Um, not only t- you know, really hard things like post-traumatic, but even sometimes really great things in life can feel like an emotional injury. Things like the birth of a baby, um, that it's such a shock to your emotional system that it can, it can be a difficult path to navigate, but it's not necessarily a lifelong emotional struggle. Mm-hmm. So this, this whole conversation, Dale, because I, I love how she kind of uh, helped us understand it's kind of broader and can't lump it all together. What can happen is this, is people can begin to get this idea of what in the world does it mean to go to counseling? Like that can in and of itself have a stereotype. I mean, like, do I lay on a couch? And this guy asked me, you know what? I mean, what in the world, you've been a counselor. What is the process like? Like if I was to go to counseling or maybe who needs counseling, what is that process like? And how do I kind of debunk some of the stereotypes in order that I can find it helpful? All right, well... I think counseling is, it's a biblical concept. In Proverbs, it says in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. This is one of the purposes for the church, actually. It's when we all come together and we can act like the church and be ourselves and be honest with one another. We are become, we become one another's counselors in the sense of brothers and sisters in Christ. So I don't, I don't think that we should take counseling as being something bad or something different. I, mostly with men, um, men do better shoulder to shoulder. I can do a lot of counseling in the woods. I, I tell that to my wife. I'm going to go do some counseling. I'm going to get my bow and arrow, and I'm going to go out and hunt because my buddies are out there, and we end up counseling one another shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, women, they, they do a little better face to face. But if, if a man will come in and, and just be real with themselves and we just have a man-to-man conversation, we might call that counseling. And so I think counseling is good. It does have a stigma with some people, but I don't think it should. And uh, everybody has issues. Hmm. Yes? 
has. I mean, for us to act like we don't have issues, we're not being honest with ourselves and we're not being fair with those around us. Everybody has it. We live in a broken and we live in a fallen world. And this is God's way of dealing with that by giving us the family of, of God through, say, church and for conversations such as this. So I don't think it's, all of, us, all of us will be injured some way. All of us have already been injured. The question is, how are we responding to that injury? And then that's sometimes where we get the different classifications, whatever. But it's not that you're different or I'm different from anybody else because I seek counseling. We, we all have issues. So then help, help us interact with this. And maybe, Sarah, if you want to go with this. Like, so what you just did was you kind of broadened the idea of counseling because counseling is something that can happen in a professional counselor's office, can happen in a pastor's office, but it can happen with my friend in the woods, right? right? right. And so why don't you help us understand this? Like, how do I know when I need to go like to a professional who maybe has some expertise versus when I maybe just need some good friends in my life and maybe I just need some really, really good friendships to help me and to bring some counsel into my life? My thought there would be, um, if you're talking to your friends and you're doing well, awesome. Mm -hmm. But I would ask, how's it working out for you? If talking to your friends and, you know, talking to um, maybe the non-professionals is you're still having a hard time having what we consider like normal adult functioning. You're having a hard time in relationships and maintaining a job and having interest in life and being able to take care of yourself and sleep adequately and eat adequately. If it's working without seeking professional counseling, then okay. But if, if you're just not able to maintain kind of adequate life functioning or you feel stuck in that emotional area of your life, then maybe it's time to talk to somebody professionally. Yeah, I think something, uh, you want to add anything to that today? I don't want to. Um, she did pretty good. Yeah, she did pretty. Something that, that um, Sarah said in the first service that I thought was interesting is worth writing down is uh, this idea of asking questions becomes a, an extreme skill to help me get to understanding. And so I got to ask myself, do I have some good friends in my life? That's the question I got to ask. Do I have good friendships? Are there people, so here's the way to judge that, are there people that are asking me good questions? Do I have, and then they're listening, right? Then they're listening. So I gotta ask myself, do I have good friends? Are there people that are asking me good, heart-searching questions? You know, equally good question to ask, am I a good friend? Because a good friend will ask healthy questions. A good friend will ask good questions and then, learn to listen. And so sometimes what I need is just some good friends to help provide some godly counsel in my life. And then sometimes what I need is I need to go and seek some professional help. Somebody in this service, Dale, I'll, I'll go here with you and then we'll see where we go. Somebody in this service asked a question. The question is, they're not depressed, but their spouse is. So they live with somebody who is in this darkness of depression and their question is, how in the world do I help them? How do I walk through this with them? How do I help them? What do I do? What don't I do? What would you say to somebody that's living with, whether it be a spouse, maybe it's a child, somebody who's gone through depression, anxiety, how they best can be helpful? Well, I think, I think the stigma, like I have a problem I don't want anybody to know about, it can be very difficult and heavy load to carry. Um, so sometimes we suffer alone, suffer in silence, 
And uh, when we get to a place in our life when you're living with somebody or, or close to somebody, I think it's important that we're, we're patient with them. Sarah said this in the previous service. We're patient with them and we're understanding. But at the same time, you don't want to be an enabler and, and you want to just coddle. I think in a gentle way, you speak truth and then let the Holy Spirit work in that relationship, realizing that you can't do it for the person but you can understand the person. And I think that's very important uh, when we talk about going forward and working with one another. Every, everybody has issues, we have to understand that. And to work together patiently is uh, probably the most uh, important thing. Would you add anything to that, sir? Um, pray, mm -hmm. and then pray, and then pray. <laughs> you know, that feels like a trite thing, but mm -hmm. really God's the one that's gonna do the work, so just keep praying. Um, keep including, keep asking them if, they're, if they want to go on a walk, if they want to go out with the family. Keep including, keep trying. Um, I would also say if we look all through Scripture, we see where Jesus is. He's headed one way, and he sees somebody hurting or somebody that's afflicted or someone that's sick, and he lets it change his direction. So sometimes when we're caring for someone who's struggling, and we, I'm a type A person, so I like to like, ah, I'm going this way. Be willing to let hurting people turn our direction. And sometimes that can be, um, can be really difficult. I also think um, when, we, when we have somebody in our life who has diabetes, we know that their pancreas is not working correctly, but their brain is the one making the care decisions. When we're working with somebody who has a, a mental health issue, your brain is the decision-making mechanism, and your brain is disordered. Mm -hmm. So I think it creates a new kind of patience and compassion when you understand the perspective that they may not res be responding to you because they can't. Mm -hmm. And so they just need that extra love and, and direction, but not to personalize it when maybe they're not doing or behaving the way that you think that they should. Yeah, I think that's powerful stuff that they, they both shared. I, I was sharing first service. Some of you come here for any length of time know that, uh, that I was on the other end of this, right? And uh, after my wife and I uh, were married, went through a, a time of deep, deep darkness. And I can tell you from that spot, from that area, uh, several things I think are important for you to know. One is this, and this is worth writing down. You, you can't fix them. And so don't try. It's not even that helpful to them. Uh, so if they're going through a darkness, for you to feel like you got to fix it and you got to somehow be the solution to it, you can't. Right. Uh, it might, might take you in a dark spot, right. to be honest with you. Uh, the thing that I can tell you that my, my wife would sit here and say, it, she'd say, I didn't know what I was doing because it was shocking. Uh, I was probably the most optimistic person she had ever met. And then I went into this depression, and she's like, I don't even know who I married. Like, I don't even know who this is. And um, some of the things that she did was pray. I don't think that's a trite, trivial thing. She was a constant, consistent presence. Okay, so she loved me in my mess and in my confusion. Uh, I think, you know, this doesn't even sound cool to say, but I think the fear that they might go somewhere is real. Like, what, what, if, they, what if they leave? What if they, Right? because I wasn't the strong whatever. And she was constant, consistent, and she bore my burden during that time. 
she did some things that helped lift the burden. And so the minute you think you can fix them, uh, Sarah used this term, first service. She talked about the oxygen mass, that whole principle. You want to make sure that you're not losing oxygen in an effort to help them with oxygen. And so some powerful stuff. Sarah, I want to, we're going to jump in because we were laughing. My job, can you guys imagine this? My job this service is to make sure we finish on time. Why is that funny? I don't understand. So I'm going to keep, see that clock up there? Yeah, it's double time is what they're doing, all right? This is a, this is a really, really tough one. And I know there's people in this service right now, and maybe even they're the ones that ask it, I don't know, that are going through this. But someone asked this question. I cannot seem to get out of this valley of grief I'm in. What can I do? And then they go on. My loved one committed suicide. And now I don't know how to move forward. Do you have any suggestions for me? Well, if you had asked me this question about a dozen years ago, I could have given you the really clinical Kubler-Ross stages of grief, and I'd have felt real good about myself. Um, But it was about 10 years ago that I got a call. I was actually sitting in a, working in hospice, doing death and dying with people for a living, sitting in a meeting with a bunch of social workers when I got the call that my 15-year-old brother had taken his own life. I don't know what Kubler-Ross was thinking, but my reaction was not calculated. Mm -hmm. I literally collapsed on the floor of my hospice office and just was hysterical. I had no idea, no clue whatsoever how in the world life could possibly be okay again. I'm a really visual person, so I thought about it this way that I feel like everything a person kind of thinks and feels and they believe about life and relationships and God and all these things, it's almost like a filing cabinet of your mind. And what that did for me is it just like dropped kicked my filing cabinet all over the room and I had no idea how in the world to pick up those files and try to move on with my life again. And it was just a, four months later that I was st- starting to work with a counselor and try to put my files back together when I got a call that my 30-year-old brother had taken his life too. My files just got dropped, kicked across the floor again. I had no idea how one orders all the things that they believe and they think and they feel. I didn't, I had no idea how to move forward and it took time sitting with Jesus and sitting with a counselor on a short-term antidepressant because I needed it to survive, um, to just think through all of the things and rediscover what I actually believed about Jesus, what I actually believed about family and heaven and hell and all the things. I had, it just was such a process of reordering It was long, and it was time-consuming, and it was exhausting. But after, after just taking the effort to pursue the process, I feel like at the end of, not that there's ever an end, but in that process, my files in my mind became clearer than ever. I truly knew what I believed about me, what I believed about Jesus, what I believed about all the things that it had just screwed up for me. I began to, hoard, to order them again to where now I feel like I can walk other people through the journey as well. It's truly been a process of, of 
finding that hope and joy again. For anyone who might be going through it, I would say it's not your fault. Um, there's no returning to your old normal. You'll find a new normal. It won't look the same, but you'll find a new normal that's good. Don't put yourself on a timeline. Don't put your coping in a box. Don't expect it to follow a cute little pattern that I had seen over and over again because it's just, it's life-wrecking and life-reforming mm -hmm. to finally put kind of those files of your heart and your mind back together again. You maybe, I mean, thanks for sharing that. Um, that's been almost a decade ago and tough, tough, traumatic time. Can you uh, interact you didn't know I was going to ask this, so uh, can you interact for a minute? During that time, the best you can remember, what are some of the most helpful things people did, said? So some people sitting here are like, I'm not the one going through that, but I've got friends that are. And when you think back to that time, what was the most helpful to you uh, with the people around you? Um, practically loving on my family. I had two little babies that I just didn't even know how to... I didn't know how to do laundry. I couldn't calibrate in my mind how to shop for groceries and put meals together. So people came alongside me. I cried with people. I had people that just came and sat, didn't say a word, but practically loved and, and helped me, gave me the space and the time to think through and work through all the things that, that God needed to work through in my heart in order for me to be okay again. Mm. Yeah, so some, you know, a room this size, the truth is there might be some of you, maybe even you wrote the question, I don't know. Uh, but some of you may be, may be going through this. And I think what Sarah says is so powerful. Um, you know, when you go through a grief like this, there can be a, a, not only the pressure of losing somebody, the guilt sometimes you feel, but then there can be the pressure and the grieving people around you. You feel this pressure that they want you to be normal again, right? And that can create a pressure. Now, some of you are walking through this, and I just want to let you know this. It's not an advertisement. We just want to be helpful. But we have something here called Grief Share. What's interesting is, is this. Uh, as you heard Sarah's story, one of the things I love about Sarah, she's real, right? She's been through some real stuff. Uh, our Grief Share ministry is... Uh, led by mom and dad, right? And uh, so they walk through the very same, same thing. And so some of you are walking through this, and our desire would be that we could walk through it with you. Uh, one of my favorite passages, Psalm 23, verse 4, doesn't mean you're always going to feel it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. And then the psalmist says, he does this, he does this, and then he says this. He says, even though I walk through the dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then he doesn't use the third person, he. He says, because you are with me. And sometimes it's in the darkness, like there's nothing, the filing cabinets on the floor. It's like, I don't even know what else to do other than to cry out to God and to others to come with me and walk with me through the valley. So some of you are in that right now, and we just want to be a help to you in the middle of that. And I want to say thank you to whoever asked the question as well, because I can tell you there's probably others that are wondering the same. Dale, somebody, did you want to add something yeah. to that? Yeah, May please I? do, please do. I think uh, we've referenced it, but there is such a thing as what they would call the ministry of presence. 
just being there is, is a ministry. Mm -hmm. But also, um, sometimes when we talk about processing grief, we think of the Kubler-Ross model of, I deal with my shock first, and then I go through, say, my denials, and then I go through anger and so forth. And there are truth to the fact, or there is truth to the fact, that we express and experience those emotions. But maybe a better way that I would express to us or tell about what may happen in a more practical way, if you wanted to, on your notes in your bulletin, if you wanted to just do a simple diagram and draw an upside down triangle, and the top left-hand point, maybe you would write on their shock, the, right, the, the other point on the other side would be suffering, and then the bottom point would be healing. And so when we get information or we experience the reality of, of the grief or the tragedy, we go into shock. Shock's not a bad thing. Shock is God's way of protecting us from something that's overwhelming us. So it's not necessarily bad. So when we face that, we might say, thank God for the shock, because I don't know what I'd do otherwise. But then after we're in shock for a while, we might find ourselves feeling and suffering in a different way. We have to suffer. If we have a loss, it's, if that's important to us, it's going to be painful. We have to experience that. So we go into our suffering. Sometimes we want to avoid suffering. And when we do that, we could postpone our grief. We have to just embrace the pain of it. But sometimes the pain is so great, we can go back into suffering or shock. So as we're in shock, again, it's a way of protecting ourselves, but then we go back into suffering. So if you were to put a double arrow, an arrow going one way and then an arrow going back, I think you need to allow yourself room to go back and forth. And then after you're in suffering for a while, you might go down to that healing, you might start feeling better and you start working on it. And as you do that, but then maybe you get triggered and you go back into your suffering. And then maybe from that, you go back into your shock. But then from shock, you might go back down into your healing. So you may want to put a double arrow from suffering to healing and a double arrow from healing back into shock. And this, this kind of double way on this interstate is probably a more consistent image of what happens when we, when we go through grief. And uh, we just have to go through it. There is such a thing as secondary grief. So you have a primary loss. There's secondary losses that come with that. And you, we want to be prepared for those. That happens as well. And uh, I, I grew up playing music with my dad, Merle Haggard, and fiddle music and all that good stuff. You know, the good music they don't play anymore. Merle who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, you don't listen to the right music. You don't know who Merle is, you know. And... Uh, so I grew up with that, the steel guitar rag and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and uh, my dad died about 18 years ago, but my father-in-law grew up in the same era. He played music, and I played music with him, and he'd do the picking, and I'd do the grinning and picking, and all that kind of stuff. He died about five years ago. I never even thought about the secondary loss to my father and to my father-in-law until now. Who do I play music with? Nobody knows the steel guitar rag anymore, and nobody knows this fiddle music. Or I'm sitting there like, man, I miss playing with my buddies, mm. my dad and my father-in-law. That's a secondary loss. Mm -hmm. And it's just as real to me, but it's an ongoing loss that I have to live with and accept. It's just the way it is. But grief is not only primary grief, but you have secondary grief as well. See that clock? Yeah, every week it does that to me, right? Don't y'all turn around. Everybody turns around. Don't y'all. That's not for y'all to do. 
<laughs> but we're going to go speed it. We're going to speed it a little bit. But let, let me say this. I forgot to say this at the beginning, and I want to say this here in a few minutes, not right now. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask a PG-13 question. If your children are with you, we have an incredible children's ministry. And if you want to take them downstairs, it'd be great. But in a few minutes, I'm going to ask a question that i just like you to know. I'm going to have a little PG-13 element to it. Before we get there, Sarah... Uh, we kinda, I kind of picked you out to start this question because of some recent things you've just walked through. Uh, this person asked this question, how can I possibly forgive the person who inflicted the trauma in my life? I'm so angry that they did this to me. Well, I recently had the opportunity to go to court. I didn't do anything wrong, I was the victim. Um, I got mauled by a pack of pit bulls crazy long story, um, but the lady whose dogs they were, this, she was a chronic offender, and her animals had hurt people in the past. And so I, I sat in this courtroom with a woman who had absolutely no remorse whatsoever, me and a few of the other people who were hurt. And I had a decision to make. I think that unforgiveness is a prison. Mm. So I had a choice to make if I let myself be in prison, then this gets to define me. It impacts my relationships, it impacts everything. But if I make a choice to forgive, then I was able to go to court and essentially declare this won't define me. I choose to forgive you, not because I want to or you somehow deserve it. Um, I just... I think about Colossians 3:13, where it says to um, forgive as the Lord forgave, or as the Lord forgave you. He didn't say forgive when you feel like it, or to forgive when the person who offended you was worthy of forgiveness or had remorse. Um, so I, I made that decision that I would stand and stand there in court and just say, "Look, I choose to forgive you. I got to walk away free." There's some other victims that were in the courtroom that walked away bitter and imprisoned, but I had the opportunity to walk away, for, walk away free. Now, to be clear, forgiveness, I don't think forgiveness always means restoration of relationship. That's right. If somebody has deeply offended you and deeply hurt you, and they will continue to hurt you, forgiveness does not mean that you have to have a relationship with them. Forgiveness means that you release yourself from prison. Yeah, let me just stop, and uh, there's several things you ought to write down that she said were power-packed, uh, and I want you to get them, okay? First is this. She said, you can't extend what you haven't experienced, that the power to forgive comes from experiencing forgiveness, and so I can't extend what I haven't experienced. She said this. She said, forgiveness is a choice, right. and sometimes, this is worth writing down, sometimes it's an everyday choice. Uh, she kind of kind of skirted over what she went through. It was traumatic what she went through. Uh, and I got a chance to listen to her speech in the courtroom. I'm really proud of you. Uh, it was powerful, her speech. Uh, she gave uh, testimony to the gospel in there. But it's an everyday choice. And the choice she made that day, sometimes she had to make every day to forgive. It's a choice not to live in the prison of unforgiveness. And so her situation was a pack of pit bulls. But some of you are living with somebody, and the struggle is forgiving who you're living with, right? It's not a pad of pit, pit bulls. It's, it's maybe your husband, your wife, whatever it might be, right? But then she said something else. This is worth writing down. 
Forgiveness is a gift. Trust is earned. They're two different things. And so for me to offer forgiveness, that's a gift. I'm walking out of prison, right? Does not necessarily mean that the relationship always is restored to where it was. Doesn't always mean that. So trust is earned. It's powerful. So appreciate your testimony in that too, uh, in that courtroom that day. Dale, somebody asked this. And I want to get to it because I think it might be somebody in this service. I feel so lonely. I want to have relationships, but I'm afraid that people won't like me if they really know me. I'm paralyzed in the fear of being rejected. What do I do? Well, I guess what I would comment on the fact that those feelings, I think, I think we go through the natural life in a broken world, as we know. We live in a broken world. Sin has devastated this world. At times we were, at the beginning, God created us to live forever. Sin has entered the world, and now we look at old age as being 80 or 90 years old. You talk about utter devastation. We're all broken. I think we need to understand and accept the fact that we're in this together. And how many of us in here ever felt lonely? I mean, how many here ever felt rejected? Probably every hand could go up with that. So when we do experience that, it's sometimes just like we do personalize it, internalize it, and we say, it's, what's wrong with me? Pastor Dale, if you knew me like I know me, you wouldn't like me either. It's already a conclusion. And I think that's where we got to be careful. It, it, it's, it's intriguing to me when I study the scriptures and the more I study it, the role that confession plays in our life. God's way of dealing with our issues, if you think about it, God's way of dealing with our issues is confession. Confession means to admit to, acknowledge, to tell, and to agree with. You say, well, agree with what? Agree with the truth. What's the truth? In order for us to experience salvation, our our forgiveness is predicated upon confession. Like, why does God, this is intriguing to me. Why does God, who knows everything about us, even to the numbering of the hairs that Pastor Dan and I used to have on our heads. He knows everything about us. Why does he ask me to confess something that he already knows? There's got to be a reason to that. And the answer that I think best answers that is this. It's almost like God saying, listen, I know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? Because our tendency is to want to protect ourselves. And so whenever we can confess what God already knows, there's a sense of his way of freeing us from that. To be able to write honestly and be in agreement with something that God already knows. If you're thinking bad thoughts, you need to confess them. If you're wanting to F somebody off and you say, I can't, I can't say that word because good people don't say that word. But if you're thinking it, God already knows it anyway. Yes? So when we sit there and we go like, okay, I'm going to write my confession of how I feel right now, and we go, oh, I can't say that. And we think about praying, and we pray nice, because we, we say what we think God wants us to hear. God already knows. He wants us to give us an honest prayer. Get, tell me what you're thinking. Write it out. Own it. And then at that point, let's talk about it. Let's find solutions to it, and let's move past the lies or, or, or the issues that maybe we're getting stuck on. The, the value of confession, I think, is God's way of dealing with our issues. 
Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And, and you said something in the first service. I want to go back and, and the fact of the matter is most of us, not going to have you raise your hands, but most of us in this room, if I had you raise your hand at some time or another, we fear rejection. Like if I had you raise your hands, most of you would raise your hands. It, it may, we may feel it different, but most of us would, would feel that. And sometimes the fear of that comes from insecurity, right? It just yeah. comes from insecurity. And so one of the things the gospel, the story of God gives us is this opportunity to know that, that in Christ, God tells us who we are right. and that we can move into relationships right. with security. I said first service, some of your parents in the room, and, and I would say this to you, because your kid who, who's in your home struggles with that insecurity, so they struggle with that fear of rejection. And so, therefore, the more you can, whether you're a single parent or not, whatever it might be, what, the more you can create that environment of security and speak into their life identity and acceptance, the, the better they're going to be to run into relationships in their school or wherever it is that they have the opportunity to make relationships. And so I think so, many of us feel this. Right. It makes us act funny sometimes is this fear of, of rejection. I have another one I want to get to for sake of time. And this one's heavy. And uh, Sarah, if you want to begin by interacting with it, but I think somebody in our campus uh, is asking this question, and I have a feeling they're not alone. And whoever asks this, I appreciate your courage. Um, the, the question is this. I was raped, and nobody knows, not even my husband. I deal with this every day, and I'm afraid that if my husband finds out, he will not look at me the same anymore. What should I do? Ooh, heavy one. Um, I would first of all say there's no blanket answer. There's no magical solution. When I heard this question, I decided I'd do a little bit of research. I'm sort of a nerd. <laughs> there's a, a brand new research study done by the American Psychological Association, so it's legit. Um, they studied 1,000 people who admitted to harboring a deep secret. And the responses they put into kind of two categories. They put people who responded with a sense of shame, which they defined as um, feeling, attaching to your character of being worthless or small. So people who had a secret and it made them feel in their character. And the other group of people was people who experienced their secret with a sense of guilt, which is related to, I think they said, a feeling of remorse or regret about something that they either did or happened to them. The people who took that secret and had a sense of shame and tied it to their character, the study showed that the longer they harbored the secret, the more control and power the secret had in their life. The more it started oozing in their relationships. So you can't have a sense of shame and harbor something so deep and have it not spill out somehow. And some of, the, some of the ways that they studied that this spills out in people's lives is that it causes defensiveness in their relationships, an attempt for perfectionism, being overly apologetic or compliant, or putting off or refusing to do things that they even found enjoyable. So our secrets have power. Whether we know it or not, if we're attaching it to our character, it spills out in our relationships. So to whoever this person is, 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. That's, it's horrible. But if your secret is attached to shame, it is coming out. It's coming out, not in your words, but in your actions and how you interact with yourself and others. Um, I don't know the circumstances, but if you have a healthy relationship with your spouse where they can handle the information and you can process it with them, I think it would, it's generally healthy to tell your spouse so that they can see. But if it's not your spouse, find someone who you can trust, who you can share your secret with. There's something about putting your secrets into words that it just loses their power. They lose your, the control over your life. So to this woman, I'm so sorry. Find someone safe. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it is your spouse. But find someone safe. And don't let what happened to you control your life because it will. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to say, add to that, uh, all of us have sinned. All of us have been sinned against. Uh, if we want to f- follow a biblical example of what's healthy, is study Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. They were naked and unashamed in every way, not just physically, but emotionally. And They were naked and unashamed. To have a healthy relationship would be to live a life without the secret. It's the shame that robs us of that. And, and we want to be careful that we don't take an attitude like, well, that's, that's bad, but my sin over here is not as bad. And so somehow you're worse than I am. That, that should never be a part of our thinking as believers. If, if there's something going on to be able to receive someone in truth, as Sarah said also, that write things down. That's the form of confession. You write it down, talk it through, find a solution to it with the grace of God. The scriptures teaches us that God is love. It's the only major religion out there that teaches that God is love like we learn it in scriptures. God came to us because he loved us. If we love one another, we need to love them for where they are and who they are also. Yeah, I would say this. Um, if you're in the room and you wrote the question, I want to first say, I'm so glad you're here. I want to say thank you for the courage of voicing your question because I don't think it just represents you. I want to agree with Sarah and say I'm so sorry. That's been your experience. And I want to strongly encourage you to talk to somebody who can be helpful. We're only as healthy as our secrets, right? And many of us struggle with that. That might not be our secret, but our secrets somehow begin to affect us. And my encouragement to you would be just as Sarah said, tell somebody, so that eventually maybe you could tell your significant somebody, your husband, your wife, whatever the secret is. We're glad that you're here, and our desire is to be helpful uh, the best we can. Uh, I'm glad that you're here, and we want to help you walk towards healing. I want to say to those of you who are in the room, you might be sitting in the room not know it, but you might be the spouse of somebody who has a secret, and they're working up the courage to tell you that secret, and someday they're going to share that secret, and you're going to be like, wow, so glad the picture God gives us for marriage is the gospel. And my encouragement to you would be to begin praying and asking God to give you the grace and the courage to receive that secret so that you might embrace them and help them walk towards healing as they share that secret with you. Anything you guys, the time is up, right? Anything you want to say in closing? Uh, This is our final conversation on this particular topic. Anything you want to share with the group before we close?
I would just want to say that if you are struggling with um, a mental or emotional health issue, just to remember that you are not your illness or your condition. You are not your trauma. You're not what's happened to you or what you've done to someone else. You might have a chemical imbalance that impacts you, but your chemical does not define your character. It's not a sin to be sick. Um, that you are a fully loved child of the king. You are fully valued. Um, that he loves you. God is not intimidated by our weaknesses and our struggles. It might be a, something you struggle with your whole life, and God is walking beside you, and he wants to be on the journey of your healing with you. If you're a caregiver of somebody who's struggling or you know someone, what you're doing and how you love is important. It matters. You are literally and tangibly being the hands and feet of Jesus and never take that lightly. I would conclude by saying this. I like to think of myself more of a pastor than I am a counselor for these reasons. Because, because God is love, he has come to us. When he could have said, like, okay, go to hell. Let's start with Adam and Eve number two. See if they get it, you know. It, that's not his attitude. If they sin, I will redeem them. Here's the words of the gospel. Restoration, reconciliation, redemption, salvation, resurrection. That's the words of the gospel. Those things are realities in our lives as we identify and allow the Lord to work within our hearts. Whatever issues we have, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. Let's not make it worse than what it is. But to know Christ is the thing. And to understand his love for us is what we want to attain. Can you guys see why I like working with these two? Can you give them a big hand of appreciation this morning for being here? And I would just say this before we close in prayer. If, this, if you're here and you're newer, uh, our heart and desire is to run into messiness, the messiness of life. And the reason for that is we believe the gospel, the story of God, has the power to take what is messy and make it beautiful. That in the light of Christ, there's the healing of grace, right? And so if you're here and you're newer, that's our heart. If you're here and you call Grace Church your home, listen to me. My prayer is this, is that we'll never get tired of doing hard things, running into messiness. Uh, Sarah's mother gave her a little piece of paper and uh, before she came up here, and on it, it said, we do hard things. And so that's what we do here. And the reason we do hard things is because people have some hard things going on in their life. And we want to run into the messiness of life in order that we might offer the hope and the light and the help of the gospel that comes from Jesus. So Father, we close this conversation, but we certainly don't close the conversation that's going to happen between us. So God, I pray that you would help us to see even more profoundly how much you love us, what you have to say about us, and that God, not only that, but that you would help us then to extend that to others. God, we have people that are walking through dark stuff. I think of uh, Emma's family here in our community right now. And God, I lift them up and pray for them that you would wrap your arms around them in a profound way. 
God, some of us are sitting in this room and we are the ones who ask the questions we just interacted with. And I pray that we would sense, know your power and presence in a way that would give us courage, that would give us maybe the courage to speak to somebody for the first time about the secret we've been hiding, that would give us the courage to walk out of the prison of unforgiveness that we're in, that would give us the courage to be real about the grief and the filing cabinet being dumped on the floor, that would give us the courage to accept what you say about us so that we can move into and not away from relationships. God, help us, and then help us to be helpful to each other. And God, I pray as a result of that, our community would see that you're a God who can take messiness and make it beautiful. We love you. Thanks for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name.